You've heard that old joke about fruitcake. Maybe you've even shared that joke that there really is only one fruitcake and everyone just keeps passing it around. Now, fruitcake has a terrible reputation which can be well earned. I've had some pretty terrible versions of fruitcake and I've had some really amazing versions of fruitcake. Fruitcake has an impressive history. To commemorate the holiday season's approach, I'm sharing my interview with Ken Albala, food historian, and our talk about the history of fruitcake. And along the way, Ken offers a few ideas on how to make a great fruitcake at home. Yes, it's possible. The Eating Liberty Podcast, episode 266, Food and Freedom Once a Week for Life. My guest today is Ken Abawa. Ken is a professor of history at the University of the Pacific in California and focuses on food history. Ken is the author of 25 books ranging from noodle soup to academic books about the culinary and cultural history of food. Ken is joining us today to talk about fruitcake. Ken, thank you very much for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Thanks for having me. So, before we get into our Christmas topic, which is going to be fruitcake, and yes, yes, before you all turn off, this is going to be more interesting than you expect it to be, and for that reason, you need to stick around. Uh, give us some of your background into either culinary or history and what's going on in your world. Sure. Um, my name is Ken Albala. I'm a, a professor of history at the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. And um, I'm a food historian in the broad sense of that term, meaning that I study pretty much anything to do with food, um, provisioning um, people's attitudes toward it, toward food, their dietary ideas, their religious ideas, their um, serving modes. Uh, but also a culinary historian in the more narrow sense in that I cook historic recipes um, and want to know how they were done and what they tasted like and um, recreate them. Well, now, cooking historically sounds very interesting. So we're going to have to <laughs> we may have to have you back to talk about that because I, I think there's a, a lot to mine there. There certainly is, yes. <laughs> in... And doing my own little quick research about fruitcake, as it was mentioned as an idea to me by one of my uh, former show guests. His name is Mark Volker. He talked to us about uh, gold and, and investments and money and what money isn't. And I will have a link to his episode on today's show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 66. As I'm digging into this idea of fruitcakes, thinking, thinking I'm not going to get much, wow, that was not true at all. So do you have some sense of when when did fruitcake begin as sort of this thing? What was it originally? Well, the thing that we normally think of as a fruitcake, which is largely fruit embedded in some kind of bready matrix, 
um, goes back really to ancient Egypt, if not before then. Um, if you look at these conical loaves that they made in Egypt, they often contain dates and honey and other sweeteners. And, you know, where the definition of a cake divides from bread is the really difficult question. There are, things, there are fruit cakes now that are more bready than cake. But I think, you know, as long as we don't quibble about that distinction, because they didn't put fat into their breads, um, there's there's fruitcakes going back to, um, you know, several thousand years B.C. And, and not only um, there's no recipes for them, per se, but the equipment to make them. And sometimes the actual breads survive. Uh, they buried them with people in tombs. So um, we know that they were putting fruit in kinds of bread cakes um, from the very earliest civilizations. And that's one of the things that I found. I didn't get as far back as Egypt, but some of the things that I was reading were talking about the ancient Romans and using it more like a uh, an energy bar. Yeah, the Romans did have things like that. Um, they were they were uh, you know sort of the ancestors. They weren't very heavily spiced. We often think of fruitcakes as being you know laden with uh, so called Christmas spices, meaning cinnamon nutmeg, cloves, ginger, those would be um, medieval. Um, and and the, I think the Panforte of Siena is a wonderful uh, surviving remnant of that era. It's really, it just means strong bread um, or pan pepato, which has got pepper in it also. Um, but the Romans had things sort of like that, but which they sweetened with um, honey or um, grape must, um, which is called sapa. It's kind of the ancestor of balsamic vinegar, but not sour. Uh, they didn't have, really have sugar, so you know how you, you what you consider to be a proper fruitcake. I think people might say, well, the Romans really didn't have it quite yet, but they had something like that. Um, there are no explicit recipes. There, there are recipes that are um, kind of cake-like things. Some of them contain cheese. Sometimes they have um, you know grains mixed into into the uh, into flat sort of doughy sheets and things like that. Many cakes, and in fact, even. Sacrificial cakes are mentioned in um, Cato, um, Cato's Re Agricultura, which is um, a book of, of uh, farming manual, basically. Um, and there's a handful of sacrificial cakes in there, which, um, you know, they're, they're not quite fruit cakes. But I think by the time you get to the Middle Ages, they're definitely there. One of the things that as I was talking to Mark about this and started thinking more carefully about this idea, uh, on my blog, I've got some different uh, posts about various spices because uh, that was interesting to me to sort of write about cinnamon. But in reading about how these spices uh, came to be known around the world, there's a very interesting and a very violent history of spice trade. And so I, I think that getting spices in a thing, I think, adds a level of expense to the product and dried fruit, uh, especially exotic dried fruit, fruit that doesn't grow where you are. So where now to us going to the store and buy and choosing from one of different 70 different boxes of a snack bar uh, in ancient Rome, you don't really have those choices and is probably <laughs> yeah. something that's very expensive. Um, so how is that? Is my conjecture correct? Yeah, I mean, the spices are an enormous factor in making fruitcake. And I would say so is sugar. You know, sugar is among those spices. And it depends on the period you're talking about um, when they are expensive and valuable and 
markers of social status. Um, I think if you want to look at the, the height of sort of the spice trade, it goes from the late Middle Ages through about the 17th century. Um, and, you know, the uh, spices would have been brought from, well, let's, let's take one example. Let's say cloves, which come from the Moluccas, which is in modern day Indonesia. They would have been carried from um, Ternate and Tidor or uh, Banda in the case of nutmeg. From there, all the way to Malacca, which is on the Malay Peninsula. From there, all the way around to the um, Red Sea or to the um, and carried overland, basically from the Gulf, from the Indian Ocean to the Mediterranean. Then picked up in places like Alexandria or Beirut and taken to Venice the, by the Venetians, and then transported from there to London, let's say, or to Germany or wherever. So the price is, is extraordinary by the time you get to um, to anywhere in Europe. And, you know, there's there's various reasons people use spices. Partly they're this marker of wealth. There's also a medicinal logic, as most of them are hot and dry and burning and act as a medicinal counter to uh, cold. So that's why they're used in, in wintertime. And um, and I think also they're um, you know they're they're just associated with exotic far off places. Europeans really didn't know where they came from yet, um, not until the Portuguese actually get there directly in the 16th century. And what I find most fascinating about this whole history, and obviously uh, you know a, a fruitcake, the fruits are are not really expensive. It's the spices and the sugar that are the expensive part. But what's really interesting to me is that once this direct route by the Portuguese to uh, Goa and to uh, Malacca and then even, you know, as far as uh, Macau and China and eventually even Japan, the um, the goods are come in much larger volume. The, the Portuguese are, are interested not lowering the prices because obviously this is, you know, their, their wealth. But once they, they start coming in in much greater volumes, um, they don't really act as a marker of wealth anymore. You know, once everyone can drive a Cadillac, it's no longer a big deal. Um, and they kind of lose their status. And by the, about the middle of the 17th century, they get marginalized into desserts. I mean, we would not think of sprinkling cinnamon and nutmeg on a chicken. Although you never know, maybe, you know, a company marketing, um, you know, pumpkin spice will eventually figure out a way to put it on everything. But, but that would have been pretty typical in the Middle Ages and even into the uh, Renaissance period. You know, uh, cinnamon and sugar on your pasta or sprinkled on a chicken or on a roast is really pretty common. Um, but by the 17th century, those things, and, and sugar as well, get marginalized to desserts. You, you <laughs> it you don't doesn't even sound good to think about. It, it actually really does taste good. And, and this is this is part of why I like, you know, historic cooking is when you say this to someone, they think, wow, that can't make sense. And when you taste it, it actually makes complete sense. Um, I think, you know, you have to trust that people in the past knew what they were doing and they put flavors together that might be uncommon today, but they are, um, but they're good. And, and I think, you know, in the case of fruitcake is a, is a perfect example of things that would, I don't know whether they would seem incongruous, but they but they seem to be over the top. I mean, you know, you take your typical fruitcake, which has got, you know, just the barest amount of flour and butter, let's say, or some kind of fat. And then it's just loaded with a riot of fruits and a riot of spices. Then it's often soaked in alcohol afterwards. 
and you think this is about to be over the top, but that's exactly what Christmas is about. You know, that's that's the you know the flavor riot that you want when it's cold out. You want something that's fortifying and really strongly flavored. And and I think there's a there's a very good reason it's lasted this long. You know, at least in some form, it's survived the past uh, six centuries. Let's say um, is that despite people's maligning fruitcake. It actually does taste good. And, you know, we shouldn't think of the, you know, the, the very bad versions that are out there. The well, supermarket, some of them can be. Know, cakes, which can be dreadful. Um, let's go back for a second. I want to, you, you brought up something about the the sort of the derivatives, the panettone and the panforte and the stolen. But the, I was reading something and I'm looking for my notes here, but I, the, at the at the end of the harvest, especially the nut harvest, uh, it seemed to be a tradition that some families or some communities would make a nut pound cake or nut fruit cake and save it till the spring of next year, and then to eat it as sort of a uh, a good omen or or good blessings onto the next harvest. Yeah, well, I don't know specifically about the details of that, but I think it is important to distinguish some of the things you just mentioned. Um, a pan panettone is actually really a bread. I mean, it's it's got sugar in it, and it's light and fluffy, and it's it's um, leavened like a bread with a natural um, leavener. But that won't last <laughs> all year. Um, I think what you're thinking, and stolen also, stolen will go will go stale. <laughs> you know, no pun. Um, in um, you know, because it's got it's basically a bread that's sweetened and has eggs in it and some pieces of fruit, but it's very light and and lovely. And those those uh, panettones like from the area of Milan, you know, basically. Um, but what you're thinking of is probably panforte of Siena, which is a fruit cake and it's flat and dense. And at least the claim is that this goes back to the Crusades that they could carry this with them and it wouldn't go bad. And when, whether that's true or not, I think that the you know, the preservative power or, or the logic, let's say, of, of preserving fruitcake is definitely there. If you dry the fruits, they're not going to go bad. If you add sugar, you're, again, stopping, you know, bacterial uh, contamination. And then, um, you know, you add nuts and you add uh, alcohol to this and, and stuff. And it, of course, it's preservative. It's, you could last, you know, you can keep fruitcake indefinitely. And if you really don't like it, you just hand it over to your relatives and get it back and forth every year, which is, you know, the ongoing joke about it. But I think that's the, the original logic of fruitcake is that it's meant to um, preserve the fruits. Absolutely. So how then did it turn into a Christmas thing as opposed to an end of harvest thing? Well, I don't think you'd be able to um, preserve the fruits at the end of harvest because, I, I mean, I don't think you'd want to consume them then because let, let's think that you have, I don't know, um, figs and apricots and raisins and things like that. You're going to be making them uh, in the course of the summer when those things are ripe. And basically you'll put them out in the sun and let them dry or you'll candy them, which means you just keep cooking them down in sugar over and over. And some things, you know, that are really medieval still linger around like that, like Angelica, for example, which is a stalk. It's sort of like a celery stalk. It doesn't, the, the commercial brands you can buy today are dreadful. And I think that's the, the little green squares that everyone gets terrified of when they, when they eat fruitcake. But it's, but it's candy, you know, in the same way that you candy cherries or you candy 
any kind of fruit, um, home fruit even. And, and I think that the, um, you know, so this is not something that you would make, you would consume at harvest. You'd candy those things and dry the fruits and everything. Then you'd make the, the um, cake and, you know, ideally you keep it for a long time. The flavor improves. Um, you know, they, the flavors meld, the spices permeate the whole thing. And if you're dousing with that, with alcohol, it gets this, um, you know, wonderful aroma and perfume of whatever, whatever you're adding to it. Um, so, so it's not something you consume right after the harvest, you, ideally Christmas, or maybe even, you know, in the course of the, the whole following year. As I was reading through, uh, looking into, I, I ran the idea of feeding your fruitcake was a really fun thing to find. And this was on the Swiss Colonies website. And I'll put a link to that on the show notes page. But they're talking about feeding it with alcohol to keep one, to keep it moist, <laughs> to keep it, I, I'm, at least you keep you entertained. But, um, that's something I've never heard of before. Now, I know that uh, we've made stolen uh, when I worked at a restaurant in Tallahassee and we soaked our already dried fruits. And I can't remember. I'm going to guess it was a combination of probably Grand Marnier and brandy and rum um, and let them sit there for a good month before we put them into the stolen. And it, it's, you know, it's not kid bread, but it was really good. So, yeah, this yeah. just... Well, this is like the feeding that this fruitcake is a little different because you actually wrap it in cloth and you you just douse it, you know, and every I think it's every few weeks you, you, you know, add a little more alcohol to it and it absorbs. And the logic is that this the, the thing is not going to dry out um, and that it will absorb and mix into the fruit and the cake and everything. Um and so uh, usually it's brandy um, or sometimes port or things like that. And the other the other thing to, to remember is that these are very closely related to fruit puddings also. So something that we just don't have in the United States is this tradition of um, steamed puddings, like a figgy pudding or a, a plum pudding or the, um, you, you know, things that, that are also associated with Christmas. But it's basically the exact same thing. I want you to imagine like suet. And sugar and a lot of fruit wrapped up in a cloth and then put into a bowl or a, or a steamer and then steamed in the exact same procedure, but not baked. In other words, a fruitcake is just the baked version of this, which dries out if you don't do if you don't keep adding alcohol. The steam version is light and fluffy. And of course, you know, it's the Christmas pud that you, you set on fire with alcohol. But they're very close relatives. Well, you know, everybody who's old enough to remember Pink Floyd knows the end of the song of, you know, how can you have any pudding if you don't eat your meat? Now, Americans hear that. <laughs> exactly right. and we think Jell-O brand pudding and don't really understand that no, no, to no, no, no. the English that's not what pudding is. And I was reading on a website and I've lost the name of it, but there was a suggestion that the figgy pudding in the song, We Wish You a Merry Christmas, is referencing that plum pudding that would have been so popular among the English at the time and something that I think Americans probably, and be, judging on the reaction of my two kids and my wife, I think most Americans aren't too keen on a plum pudding because it's it's denser and richer and yeah. sweeter yeah. than they expect it to be. Well, to clarify, the, the word pudding is used in many parts of Britain just to mean dessert. 
They don't, the dessert is just not a, it sounds sort of um, pretentious to say dessert because it's a French word. Um, so pudding, if you're in working, you know, working class, and especially for Northern Britain, Britain, this means dessert. But in a more specific sense, it means something that's in a casing that's cooked. So think of haggis is a pudding. You know, it can have meat in it. A sausage is essentially a pudding. It's something that's in the gut of an animal or in an intestine. Um, when that is why they say black pudding when they refer to you know blood sausages. So it's so it's a it's a completely generic term. It's something very specific, but it has nothing to do with the pudding that we think of as you know gel chocolate pudding and vanilla pudding. Until maybe the 18th century, they start applying that term to it. Um, but but that's a totally different branch of what it what it would be, have been. The original pudding is um is the fruits and the uh, you know, in, in a suet and flour mixture and then steamed. And it's actually really interesting. I mean, it's, it's not heavy at all. It's actually much lighter than fruitcake, oddly enough. Um, and, you know, the other confusion is that meat can go in them. You know, when we think of minced meat today, we think of like fruits in this sort of, you know, syrupy goo. Uh, but it definitely, the original ones included meat in there. Well, well. And suet. Right, right. Well, it's beef fat instead of butter, so it's not really, you know, that different. in, in the end, and the and in fact, I have to say, yesterday I made a suet crust on a pie, which is basically basically like a mincemeat, and it's so it's lovely. It's just so much more flaky and flavorful. That actually sounds and, good. Um, it's just something we don't do in this country. I'm not sure why, but um, there it is. <laughs> well, if you don't know, I don't know who does. Yeah, I don't know why we, why it's it's gone out of fashion. I think um, you know it's, we certainly have cattle industry. Oh, we have plenty of fat to go around, um, and I'm not really sure you know apart from industrial uses what they do with it, um, you know, or and they put it in bird feeders. But you know, apart from that, we just don't really cook with suet. It's it's just beginning to appear in like restaurants and. Um, for reasons that I don't really understand, my grocery store now carries suet, you know, so it's just, which is fine, but I don't, um, I don't really know why that's happened. I, I'm going to, uh, I'm, this is 100% conjecture for anybody who wants to know, I'm going to blame the government and lobbying. Uh, this is an, this is an FDA USDA problem. Back when Ansel Keys did his faulty study about diet, and they, oh my gosh, we need to get rid of this because I think probably right. was a time when it was very, when it was very very popular. Well, I can, I, can, I can tell you your suspicion is correct in insofar as lard was very very consciously attacked by the people who make um, oleomargarine. And eventually the things that that we know for a fact now, now that, you know, trans fats are really, really bad for you. But they were marketed as being, you know, the great replacement. And who wants to eat lard, which is going to make you fat, but eat this. Fat is fat, you know. And you're absolutely right to point to Ansel Keys as, as the origin of, a, you know, the Mediterranean diet. And this idea that if you have unsaturated fat and olive oil and margarine, that's going to be good for your heart, whereas, you know, beef suet and lard and all these other things, which we have tons of anyway, are um, are bad for you. That was definitely a government-driven um, policy. And, of course, the, the doctors who made, came up with this idea were completely and utterly wrong about margarine, you know. 
<laughs> and, and many things. And that I've actually got a couple of episodes about those general things. One of them is the food pyramid, but yeah, of um, course. that that could be that that is an entirely different rabbit hole. Yes, it is. It is. But it's but you know, I think how it bears upon the topic of fruitcake is a classic fruitcake does have animal fat in it. Um and the flavor is different. It's more deep. It's more um, meaty, to, to lie, you know, to, for lack of a better word. Um, not that butter isn't wonderful, but butter is also, uh, you know, an animal fat, you know, and it's saturated. But um, but it's kind of a shame that we don't use suet. Hmm. We're going to have to do some talking. I want to figure this out because this sounds interesting. But um, one of the things that – and I knew this from just being a, a cake – maker and a recipe reader that um, I'm not sure when I'm going to guess maybe the 1800s, the English turned the fruitcake into a wedding cake um, or at least a cake for uh, grand festivals and celebrations. But the reason the fruitcake stands out to me is because it was covered in fondant. And that was what I was looking for was information about fondant. But now these two things are going together. So fondant is both visually attractive or, or personally, I think it's just terrible, but it, it serves the very useful function of holding the stuff in, including the moisture. Yeah, I don't I don't know where our idea of a wedding cake developed as this, you know, white, light, fluffy thing with buttercream. And I, I despise those kind of cakes. Um, you know, it's the last thing on earth I ever want to eat um, a fruit cake. And, I, and, and again, I don't know exactly why it became the tradition in Britain for weddings. Um, sometimes they'll actually have a bride's cake and a groom's cake. And the groom's cake is often smaller and fruit rather than and darker. Um, and the other thing that I think is maybe worth mentioning is that there's two very fundamentally different kinds of fruitcake. One is the older, denser, mostly fruit or set in a light kind of eggy, uh, bready cake. The other one has got molasses in it. I think that's another very interesting part of this whole story that we haven't looked at. The molasses is, a, of course, a byproduct of the whole sugar industry. And getting rid of molasses, figuring out ways to put it into cakes and, um, you know, confections and make candy out of it and do things like that. I think that's where the, the dark brooding fruitcake that we think of comes from. Um, in Britain, they didn't use molasses as much as treacle. And treacle is a little different. It's really right. a descendant of medicine. It comes, the word itself comes from theriac, which means... A, um, a sort of all-purpose drug that was supposed to have been invented by Mithridates, who was an ancient king who took a little bit of poison every day so he could build up a tolerance. So when the day came that he would be poisoned, you know, by an enemy, he'd be able to to, to live through it. And um, that, that recipe for theriac, which was dozens of different exotic herbs and spices and things, um, came down all the way through. And the word in English becomes treacle, um, which is dark, you know, sort of, uh, I don't actually know how they make treacle now. It's not the same as molasses. It's similar in that it's bitter and dark. Um, and it gives, you know, the, the ideal fruitcake, it's really dark, um, uh, deep flavor, um, which I, which I find really fabulous. I do too. And I, I like molasses. Now my grandfather, uh, in Detroit was a streetcar conductor. 
Uh, and so that was during the depression. And, and he was known, my mother remembers seeing him eat molasses sandwiches. Wow. Now, so I tried them now. So molasses is bitter and not everyone likes bitter. One of the things I discovered uh, as a wine taster was that in my crude calculations, about 75% of people can't detect bitter, which I thought was interesting. Wow. I don't know if that's true or not. But that doesn't it, it sound just, right to me. But I, I do know that there are people who have much, much more acute senses of taste, what are called super tasters, which means that they don't like bitter. bitter anything that's bitter, even coffee or, um, or uh, you know, green vegetables uh, presumably tastes so incredibly horribly bitter to them that they can't eat them. Whereas other people genetically just don't have that uh, marker or have fewer taste buds or whatever it is. And of course, bitter is one of those things that you are born not liking. And then you develop a, you know, you can eventually learn to like coffee and, you know, uh, tannic wines and things that are, you know, very bitter chocolate um, because you lose taste buds as you get older. So I think maybe, you know, the, the whole fruitcake thing and the, and the bitterness that comes from the molasses, maybe that as you get older, your taste buds are less acute and you like it more. Maybe it's one of those things that younger people just find weird and and bizarre because it's got such a riot of flavors and and a good a good fruitcake. Now that you're mentioning it, really does have a note of bitterness in it. Now this is just a curious uh, question. Do you suppose that that fruitcake with molasses allowed to sit and age and quite possibly even ferment a little bit the qualities of the molasses in that process are changing kind of like the qualities of a wine change over time well i think it definitely does change but it does, it's definitely not fermenting um the fermentation would be stopped by the sugar in there and the fruits themselves are preserved and the last thing you want it to do is start having bacterial growth but but no the alcohol is going to kill all the bacteria and microbes and things but it's not no, good point. a living ferment but i think it will mellow in a way that um i don't know i mean you know alcohol we don't think of alcohol really as aging but if it's in contact with wood of course it's going to draw out the flavors of that like cognac or bourbon or something is going to draw out the flavors and I think that on some level, you're right, that the, the alcohol as you pour it in is going to react and certainly seep into the fruit, but, but also change its flavor in a way that is, um, it's not just sweetness. It becomes this little notes of bitterness and of, you know, uh, deep caramel notes and, you know, thinking, thinking of wine and how it changes over time. Of course, a good fruitcake does exactly the same thing. So we mentioned, or you mentioned, the fruitcake, and everyone has seen it. It has that just hideously glow-in-the-dark red and green uh, fruit, which you've identified as Angelica, and everyone hates it. And, and now, I don't mean to besmirch the company that makes it, but I personally care not for that version. But the dark, uh, almost sticky, molassesy fruitcakes, <laughs> those things... Well, no, that's the thing that I can get behind. Yeah, well, you know, all, this discussion is actually making me want to make a fruitcake right now. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm going through the catalog of ingredients, and I'm pretty sure I have everything in the cabinet right now to make one. Um, I even have some bourbon to soak it with. 
But I, th- I think you know, right. when you're thinking about fruitcake, it's all a matter of the quality of ingredients. So if you spend a couple of dollars on a fruitcake, you can expect that what's going to be in there is bad tasting. And I think if you taste the ingredients first that go in and you say, oh, this tastes a little weird, as, as I know for a fact the Angelica in my cabinet tastes bad. Um, or if you're using jarred, you know, maraschino cherries, of course, that's what they're going to taste like when they come out is terrible. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, find the best um, candied and dried fruits that you can. Um, I, I have found that, um, like, for example, if you're using cherries, use like a Luxardo cherry, which is, which is, you know, which is, is a totally different creature. Um, and you know, the, the quality of the fruit that you put in is going to ultimately determine the quality of the cake that comes out. I, I did this once this, I'm, I'm going back now 30 years, but I was working at the New York Academy of Medicine, oddly enough, um, on food topics, on reading dietary manuals and things. It's where I did my dissertation work. And for some reason, I got it in my head to make everyone um, who worked in the library a fruitcake, or at least in the rare book room at the time. And I must have made a dozen or so. I may, maybe brought four or five for the people, you know, who the librarians who were there. And I didn't follow a recipe. I just kind of threw things together um, really good fruit. I, I'm guessing that they probably cost about $15, $20 of each as I made them because I just bought really good dried fruit um, in New York. I was This is New York, obviously. And um, I've never been able to replicate that again. Oh, man. I just threw in the ingredients and there was, you know, a little bit of leavener and it was soaked with whatever alcohol. I, I don't even remember what I found. But um but I'm pretty, I'm tempted right now to try after we're done talking. Well, my, my daughter last year, and we didn't uh, act hastily enough to get it done, wanted to make a fruitcake and insisted on getting that candied fruit stuff from the grocery store, which we still have, and I'm sure is just fine. But as, as we're talking and I'm thinking about this, I think I'm going to, uh, we'll continue our project, but I'm going to change my strategy. Uh, and I've got plenty of, quality dried fruits here with natural colors and nothing nothing that glows in the dark or uh, you know makes the gagger kind of go off and i think we're going to do this the right way because i'm interested in doing it but if we're going to make it we ought to make something that we want to eat absolutely absolutely right and and, and you know as in anything with cooking the quality of ingredients you put in will determine the end result and if you have absolutely. to doctor it up then it's not you know it's never going to be that great if you start with bad ingredients. Right. Well, that's, that is in, in most crafts, that's true. But what I know the most about is cooking and that is absolutely the case. All right. I want to switch gears here a little bit since this is the culinary libertarian show. I want to ask you uh, just a series of short answer, kind of interesting and fun questions Uh, of the five flavors, sweet, salty, bitter, Sour and umami, which one do you enjoy the most? That's the hardest question I've ever been asked. Um, I would have said um, sour up until fairly recently, partly because I just love, um, I don't know, I could put lime on almost anything. Um, I, I, I just, sour things are, are my favorites, um, obviously. But I think in recent years, I've been spending a lot more time on umami and thinking about the thing, the ingredients that, that make it, um, specifically katsuobushi, which is, you know, the iosinates are a little different than, than, um, than uh, glutamates. 
but they work together. So one you get from kombu, the other you get from fish. But basically, they give you this bomb of, of umami. And I, so I've been working on this for, oh, I would say about four or five years um, and in fact, I did an article. Well, it's a long, long story, which I won't tell you, but I was on a Japanese TV show learning how to make katsuobushi. And I told that story in an article that came out in Gastronomica, in the current issue, actually. Um, so I would say um, I'm an umami person um, foremost, and I like playing with seaweed and uh, tomatoes and Parmesan and beef and things, putting them together in, in odd ways that, um, that accentuate this. And, and I have to say that uh, running counter to most gastronomic opinion now, which has turned in favor of MSG, you know, I mean, you find cooks, gosh, it was um, Bon Appetit included a recipe that threw MSG in the tomato sauce. It was very recently. I think it must have been Carla Music. But, um, but I think MSG is different. It's one note. It's one chemical. It's, it's totally a, a cartoon version of real umami. And I think if you start throwing it into things, you're going to find that your taste buds get blown out. It's, it happens when you eat Doritos, right? When you, you taste the MSG and then suddenly nothing else has flavor and you try and eat a carrot. It's like, oh, this is boring. I need to throw more some MSG on it. But I think it's very different when you get it from natural sources, not because it's a different chemical. It's, it's the same chemical, um, although they do add a sodium uh, atom into the, the glutamates to get it in stable form. Um, but I think when you get it from natural sources, it's combined with all sorts of other th flavors so that it does, it, it's a far more complex thing. It's like, it's like, you know, one note compared to a whole orchestral suite of sounds. Um, it's like a Jolly Rancher apple flavor compared to a real apple. You know, there, there's some weird things similar to them, but the one chemical note is much simpler and much, much less complex and and then the other thing which which i think adds to this whole question is that um flavor is not just five five notes in fact that's what's happening on your tongue what goes on in flavor happens in your nose with volatile chemicals and it happens largely in your brain right i mean what we think is happening is the the simple taste you know the five tastes the aromas the mouthfeel because obviously you know fats and crunchy things, things that are spicy. That's that's not included as a flavor, but that's a that's a, a you know a tactile effect on your tongue and in your mouth and then your the rest of your system. So that and temperature. So there's so many different variables that go into taste that I think we um we as gastronomers do ourselves a disservice when we don't go to the level that say wine tasters do, you know, a wine taster will talk about mouthfeel. Um, they'll talk about viscosity and the legs or the, you know, so they, they have a much more um, rich way of describing what's going on in their mouths. And I think that's why wine tasting is miles ahead of um, gastronomy. And I think when, when we're thinking, you know, obviously scientists do this, but I'm talking about the general public. When we're talking about food, we go, mm, tasty, ooh, spicy, mm, nice and sour, whatever. But I think we need a much deeper um, critical vocabulary. That, that can, and whether that would be, I don't know, being able to um, identify guanolate and amylase and all these chemicals. I don't know whether that's that's the, the, the way to go. But I think we need some some more greater scientific input into what goes on in our mouth. And I'm just saying oh, umami is too simple uh, or it's too um it doesn't capture the depth of what's really happening in your mouth. That was a long answer to a very short question. 
I, I think that you're right, but I, I I think if for no other reason, it's it's, it's for brevity. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, you know, wine tasters are never brief. <laughs> no, but that's their, I guess, perhaps the specialization of wine alone allows the extended conversation about what's going on, as opposed to yeah. between yeah, having Doritos or a carrot or a Snickers bar or a Jolly Rancher or apple or a pear. I think I'm, 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 I'm thinking that some people just don't want to have that conversation. But I, I understand. I like what you're saying. Oh, I think but, that's an interesting. Uh, but just imagine if people did. I mean, imagine if, you know, confronting an apple, we could get really detailed about what makes a good apple. I think that the producers would be a lot more finely tuned into what consumers want. We would get more pleasure out of eating because we'd have this deep way of talking about it rather than just saying, oh, these are good. They're crunchy. <laughs> No, I agree with you. I think that being, you know, my, you, you are on the same coast I'm on, but I don't think that I've had the same problem in Florida and in Michigan and in New Jersey that at the grocery store, there's a dozen versions of the same insipid. Yes, of course, especially with apples, you know, um, they're, they're trying to get around this. And, and I think the, uh, you know, the industry has for a long time been making fruit that will ship and that looks nice. And I think as consumers, we have to get over the fact that what looks the nicest doesn't always taste the best. Um, you know, and sometimes something, I mean, apart from the fact that we waste so much food and throw it away because it's got blemishes on it, which is a crime. I think that if we were more discerning in our palates, we would make better consumers and the industry would be able to to step up to the plate and give us what we want when, you know, the things that are sold are really not sold for flavor. They're, they're not engineered for that. Um, with apples, I guess, you know, the, uh, the, the, what is it called? The, the Cosmo, I can't remember what it Cosmo press, university has been working on this, you know, and apples are, are probably the best example of this because they are, now selling a super apple that's supposed to be wonderfully flavored and everything, but they put tons of money into research and into marketing. And that apple, I bet you is going to cost twice as much as, you know, the, um, as the other conventional ones. But, but I would say, you know, it's funny, you meant, I don't know how we got onto the topic of apples and, and mentioning New Jersey, but I grew up in New Jersey um, amidst some beautiful apple orchards um, in Monmouth County and actually just a few miles from where they made um, Laird's Applejack, you know, it was a Scobieville, Boltzneck, that area. And, and I think I remember apples being just so wonderful, being like the most exciting fruit because you could pick them right off the tree there. Uh, and the varieties that they had, you know, these were McCoons and Empires and uh, Macintosh that, would, that had great crispness and, and sourness and the, the skins were, were interesting. I guess those things didn't ship, or I guess maybe, I don't know, my <laughs> my taste buds have dulled. But, you know, we went through a long period when, when you know, the stuff you could find in the supermarket was almost always um, red delicious and maybe some tired, uh, you know, wine sap or Macintosh. But, and maybe this is just a function of flavor in general, that, that when you remember something, you know, in a Proustian kind of sense, you you embellish its virtues and then, you know, think, oh, my God, the stuff that always that you could buy in the supermarket is terrible. But I think it has been for a long time. Um, and especially, 
you know, I'm going to, I'm going to malign my own state now, but there's a lot of stuff that's sent out of California that just is made to ship. It's, and, and it's because people want things out of season and they want things to be bright and red and they want it to appear and, you know, the grocers want it to show up on the shelf and look nice, but flavor has not been a consideration. And, you know, uh, what, what other, I guess the, the best other example I could give would be tomatoes. Uh, the tomatoes, I'm sorry, that come out of Florida are awful. The tomatoes that we grow here in California, they can be good for a short window, but the stuff that they ship out of state is just, you know, it's picked on ripe and it's gassed with ethylene. It's, it's just not that flavorful. But the memory I have of a New Jersey tomato is just, you know, incomparable. You know, they, they, they were you know, flavorful. If you looked at them the wrong way, they'd bruise and fall apart. But those were those were gorgeous tomatoes. I, I grew up uh, in Michigan, but spent my most of my childhood in northern Lower Michigan uh, on the Lelanau Peninsula or near there. And we could go, we could go like you did in New Jersey. We could go pick apples. We could pick apples that you've never heard of, would never ever see in a store. But would you would never find that kind of flavor in a grocery store apple, and it's only gotten worse. And I'm convinced somewhere along the line, since about '83 till like ten years ago, somebody has changed the Granny Smith apple to be more tart. Because it used to be complex. Now it's just full on salt of tartar and crunch, and that's it. I think you're right. I, I definitely noticed the same thing. Um, it's the apple that I usually go to for baking pies now because it's got really good acidity and crunch, but that's it. It's one note. You're right. You know, it used to be more complex, and it used to be a thing to enjoy. Now it's a thing. I, don't, I avoid them. So Interesting. Very interesting. What is your favorite food? Oh, gosh. Well, I go through phases. I'm, I'm one of those people who, when I uh, sort of – interested in something i go for the total deep dive and learn everything i possibly can so i've gone through periods uh you know i was writing a book on beans i eat beans every meal for several years um i did recently a book on noodle soup and that took several years also every single morning making a different noodle soup and got got it you know i think i got it down pretty much every noodle soup on earth um and right now I'm working on aspic, and I'm still not sure what I think about aspic because it terrifies me as much as fascinates me. Um, and uh, I don't always like the things that I make. So sometimes I'll put something together and it'll look beautiful and I post it on Facebook and, you know, people like it. But in the end, sometimes I don't really want to eat it. So I, so those are not going in the book, but but it's not – I think it's very different. I, I you know, can genuinely say with very few exceptions, there's not a noodle soup I don't love. Um, and I've gotten really, really good at making it. Um, but aspects, I still have a long way to go. So I'm, so I'm not going to say it's my favorite food uh, right now, but, um, but it may become so. Um, I've only been doing this since the summer, so it's only been a few months. But What is your least favorite food after aspect? Um I actually, I think I am born with a great disadvantage on earth because I like everything. Like there's, there's actually no type of food I won't put in my mouth uh, happily and enjoy. But there are a few things that I think are, I would rather not eat because they're usually pretty bad. I think mussels are on the top of my list. 
um, because when you get a good muscle, it's wonderful. And I, and as a, as a food, I love them. Uh, but so often muscles are just kind of skanky. And I just don't, I've tasted so many bad muscles that it's something I just don't really want to eat. Um, and I would say also likewise with oysters. Um, when oysters are good, they are probably toward the top of my favorite foods, really good um, mussels from New England um, or chincoteagues or from, from the Chesapeake Bay. The mussels in California, uh, the oysters in California, I think are terrible. They're, they're like just, they don't, I don't know. There's something, they're too big and they're chewy and they're kind of bitter and nasty. I don't know. Those, those I don't like. And the other thing, I know this is, I'm answering this more than I need to, but, um, but I go, I have this weird relationship with coffee. I want to love it so badly that when I see a coffee shop or even someone's talking about coffee, I'll go out immediately and find coffee, but I don't drink it on a regular basis. I don't really like it that much. Um, you know, it's just, just one of those things. I'm a tea drinker. So, and I think coffee just leaves this dreadful flavor in your mouth afterwards. And maybe, maybe that's my real aversion. It's not the flavor itself. Um, Cause I like coffee and other things, but it's the aftertaste. And I suppose that's why I don't really like raw onions either. It's the, it's the aftertaste. What gets you excited? Uh, what gets me excited um, is cooking, <laughs> being in the kitchen, uh, throwing things together, having fun, inventing something new, discovering a new technique, um, trying out something that I would never have done before. That is so exciting to me. Um, the other day I was, I had this idea and I'm not, not sure where it came from, but I was, I think I must've heard someone talking about the feast of seven fishes. You know, when you put seven yeah. fish together on a Coming up. Christmas thing. Yep, exactly. For an Italian American household. So they don't really do it in Italy. I'm not sure why it's an American thing, but um, so I decided to make an aspect out of these and I, got some tuna and some trout and uh, dried scallops, pickled herring, anchovies. Um, I think there was salmon in there. Anyway, there were seven uh, of these things and arranged them nicely in a bowl and poured over some rosé with gelatin. So I got an, an, you know, a kind of aspic out of this. And um, it was really good. <laughs> like that worked. I put it on a bed of lettuce and then, you know, put some dressing around it. And that was um, that was fun. Uh, what turned you off? Oh, gosh. Um, people telling me what to eat <laughs> and saying that I shouldn't be doing X, Y and Z or this is bad for you or this. You shouldn't eat that animal or do, you know, because obviously my priority is flavor, you know. Everything on earth, there will be ethical reasons not to eat, including, you know, the carrots that are picked by people who are paid bad wages. So I so what turns me off is when other people um, diss your your what you're about to eat or have complaints or whatever. And not that those questions don't interest me. They do. And I think we should think about them. But ultimately, I think, um, you know, let people enjoy what they eat. <laughs> And don't yes. don't criticize it. You know, yeah, I agree. What sound do you love? Which sound? Um, the bassoon. Sound? <laughs> I don't know how to play it, but if I had to play a, a double reed instrument, it was ridiculously expensive and difficult to play. The bassoon is just—I don't know why it thrills me. You know that lovely passage in the Messiah where there's the, there's a bass line that just goes. I love it. Drew Line, what sound do you hate? Leaf blowers. <laughs> That's it. The, the most annoying sound on earth 
And, you know, people do it. In fact, the guy next door, um, you know, hired a, someone to do their lawn and they blow the leaves onto my lawn. So this, so the next door looks fine. My lawn, right, sitting right in front of me, is covered in leaves because they blew them from over there. Trying to drum up business. Yep. What's your favorite food indulgence? Favorite food indulgence. And I guess that excludes alcohol, but um, I really love potato chip. I don't know why. There's something, they're, they're just a perfect food, you know, the crunch, the, the saltiness, the, yeah, of salt and vinegar potato chips. God, those food doesn't get better than that. <laughs> there was, uh, there's actually the second time that potato chips has been the answer, the biochemist, and I forgot the brand name, but there's this particular potato chip he gets in his part of Pennsylvania and he knows it's full of, you know, bad like seed or grain oil and all sorts of chemistry yeah. on the outside, but he doesn't care. It's just that good. So I understand. All right. So um, how can people find you and follow you on social media? And what book recommendations do you have, either your own about noodles or about food history? Gosh, well, I can um, be found pretty much anywhere. I have a blog. Um, I put most of every most of my activities on Facebook, um, but I've also got an Instagram account and a Twitter account, and um, and you. But I, you can find me anywhere. Just Google me. Um, <laughs> and if you are interested in the books that I've done, um, I've got either uh, written or edited twenty five. So wow. find so much wow. you're looking looking for. You know, if you want an academic food history. I've got those. I have a few cookbooks. I have some reference works. I have an anthology a translation of a 16th century French cookbook. I mean, there's there's a lot of different stuff out there. Just go on Amazon. It's the easiest place to find it. Well, what I can do is, is I'm sure Amazon has a nice tool of just aggregating all of the author's things, and I'll find that yeah. page and put that on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 66. Uh, and I will find at least your Facebook page so people can at least follow you and find out what's going on. So, hey, Well, it's mostly aspects lately, but that's, that's what I've been doing. So the people don't know that uh, Peter Reinhardt, who was a guest on the show a couple of times, uh, I asked him this morning, <laughs> I just on a whim, hey, who do you know who could talk about fruitcake? He said, well, you hold a can, and within an hour, you said, hey, I'm free. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you made time for me today to talk about fruit sure. cake, even though we, you know, we, we've had some, uh, some 2019 problems, but we fixed them all, and it was been a thrill. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been fun. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll add the link to that show's notes page on today's show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 266. If you are not persuaded to make a fruitcake, perhaps you'll consider making a version called Stolen. Now, it can be plain or with dried fruit, and it is absolutely amazing. One of my patrons and a friend of the show makes them every year, and I always enjoy looking at the photos, even though I can't smell or taste them. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert 
at mattbankert.com.